I wonder if that insularity keeps a society from being able to, to reflect on itself collectively. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us here in the Caves of Altamira. This is the inaugural episode in a new podcast venture. So thank you so much for checking this out. I'm really excited about this project. And uh, just to give you an idea of kind of the underlying premise of the show and what we're going to try to be doing here. And the way I think about it is in terms of surface current and undercurrent right, in terms of current affairs. And, you know, obviously, this is, to say the least, a very tumultuous time in the world. Uh, you could say that was even the case uh, before the outbreak of the pandemic. And there's just a lot going on. And there's a lot happening. And that is massively important and massively critical to the lives and well-beings of millions, um, and not to be hyperbolic, billions of people um, around the world. And, and sometimes it can just, it's a lot to take in, without a doubt. Matching that up with the kind of notion of an undercurrent, right? And so just thinking about a river, right, that has a surface current and an undercurrent. And in some ways, in my experience, it seems that a lot of the discussions around these things are often really hyper-focused on the surface current and what's going on here and now in the present and the day-to-day machinations of the media cycle and so forth. And there is this whole other world often residing in academia and academic journals and other discourses, uh, looking at more undercurrent issues in terms of historical, ideological, intellectual forces shaping the times and kind of seeds in which our present day are built upon. And it's been somewhat, I don't know, frustrating to me in some ways that these discussions very rarely seem or, or not often enough speak to each other directly. And, and what I'm hoping the caves of Altamira will be is kind of a space to bring these conversations conscientiously into contact with one another and doing that through discussions with people I've, I've met and, and people I, I hope to meet uh, about these issues. And uh, I, I think in that way, we are going to keep our attention very much focused on the quote unquote here and now, but but do so in a way that allows us to to think about the here and now in a broader or or wider spectrum uh, in understanding again what kind of undercurrents right and if we go back to the metaphor of the river I used earlier right that surface the surface current and the undercurrent are certainly part of one system right and we can talk about them separately and you know perhaps in some ways they are different but they work together in one system and so trying to think about current events and in this kind of system way, I think is an interesting approach. And I really look forward to building upon this kind of core idea. And in some ways, I want to think about this as a politics plus, right? I mean, certainly politics is going to be front and center. And I think politics enters into almost everything. But there's going to be adding to this, thinking about it in terms of art, music, culture, also a kind of frame of reference for trying to, again, think about the broader web of social, historical, ideological, intellectual forces shaping and guiding the times. 
Uh, so that's kind of to give you a broad idea. And this is a work in progress, right? And so uh, hopefully as uh, the show goes on and develops and can kind of make this an iterative process and I can hear from you and we can build uh, upon this kind of core premise. And briefly, just a bit about myself. My name is Kevin Hockmith. I'm currently an assistant professor of political science and Korean studies at Akita International University in Akita, Japan. I've been living here in Japan for about five years. Prior to that, I lived for seven years in a wonderful city of Busan, South Korea, which is in some ways in my own mind, at least, so almost like a second home to me, a place I quite love. So I've been living in East Asia for about 12 years. And one great thing about that is it's given me an opportunity to meet a lot of really brilliant and thoughtful people, not just from here in East Asia, but from all over the world. And so that's something I really hope to be able to tap into and bring into the discussions we're having here is a lot of these people that come from um, different places and bring kind of different set of analytical frameworks to uh, the discussion. So I'm really looking forward to that. And on that note, our guest today is George Corey, who is a dear old friend of mine and, and just one of the most brilliant and sharp thinkers about these very things, about contemporary and politics and current affairs, but also in a kind of deeper philosophical perspective as well. George is currently doing a PhD in philosophy, and in a lot of his work does kind of tap into trying to think about current and present events in the context of broader political or philosophical constructs. So uh, I'm, I'm really excited to have George today. And as I mentioned earlier, George would be one of those fascinating people. He is, as with myself, I'm from the United States and George is too, uh, but I met him in a kind of dingy, divey bar in Gayadong in Busan in the fall of 2008. And we started having discussions about politics and current events and political theory and what have you then. And, you know, in some ways, this is great. Here we are over 12 years later, and we're continuing this discussion uh, via podcast format. And as a bit of a cliffhanger, George announces a new book project that he has just commenced at the end. So as an added bonus, if you stay on till the very end, uh, George talks about this new book project, which I'm not going to give away too much now. Uh, it's just mind-blowing and fascinating, uh, the, the whole premise and the background to the project. So let's get to the discussion now. Let me just tell you just a bit about George before we uh, launch into here. George, as I said, hails from Cincinnati, Ohio. He is the child of Palestinian, uh, Lebanese, and Jordanian Syrian immigrants. Uh, he is a reformed capitalist. Um, we're going to talk maybe about what that means. That's interesting. Uh, he used to serve as a visiting professor at Pusan National University's Department of Global Studies. Uh, he's currently living uh, the life of a pandemic refugee in, in the Western United States and uh, resides with his wife in a sweet motorhome, as he describes it, known as the Sand Chicken, um, cruising around the West Coast and currently trying to finish his PhD dissertation entitled Biopower in Korea and the Microphysics of Reverend. So, George, welcome. First and foremost, kind of what are your general reactions to the election results and, and kind of how things have played out? Well, I get you know, from the inside the states, I feel a cautious relief. 
maybe it would be differently if I were in Korea or something, but maybe very similar, but like a cautious relief, a feeling that things are so delicate, but, and, and we're at like some kind of delicate balance, increasingly delicate balance and not to catastrophize it. I don't mean to suggest that there's really like animosity in the streets amongst one another. There's definitely a climate of hostility in the media mm. and social media but you know, it was funny. I, uh, as soon as we got to Joshua Tree, I went to an auto zone, and that day I was kind of fuming about, you know, the millionth thing that I saw that Trump did that's um, <laughs> hurting the, uh, trying to you know disqualify the election. And now I think it's we've rounded the corner on its um, on their sincerity. But uh, I walked into an auto zone, and as soon as I I opened the door and I saw a couple coming out, and it was this you know this guy that was just decked out in MAGA gear. And, um, and I just, and he, and he said, thank you, you know, and as he walked by and I was like, yeah, no, no, like hate towards the guy or anything like that. Right. Um, it was, it, it was, it was kind of funny though. It kind of took me back. I was like, huh. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, no, I mean, just even in that, like, I, I like that you kind of dialed right into that because there is a world presented to us of just that there is just this like un- unbridgeable gap and you know you have the maga world and you have the woke world you know you use all these buzzwords floating around yeah. but when you boil it down i mean america as much as i kind of remember it uh, and, and when i go back I, I always you know we go back usually once a year I kind of do notice that americans are are a very outgoing and dare i say kind of pretty friendly easy to get along people and, and what you just described seems to kind of have that aspect that this, you know, there is this component. I don't want to minimize this. I mean, there yeah. are a lot of anger and, 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 and some of it well-placed, some of it maybe not so well-placed, right. but there is these like everyday encounters that kind of get lost in the shuffle. I mean, no one's going to have a news story about you meeting someone at AutoZone and running into you and, and, you know, uh, right, just right. saying hello. And so, yeah, I, I think that's interesting. Yeah. Like the, um, the idea of there being like this, this, uh, I've been in countries, I've lived in countries where there were people that were one against one another, like, and you could see it in the streets. It was visible. It was marked. It was neighborhood, you know, like it was mm. in the, it was in the street discourse. Um, that doesn't exist here. It's not, it's nowhere near that. Um, I grew up in Lebanon in the eight. I lived in Lebanon in the eighties in Southern Lebanon mm. Sur, and there, there was definitely like noticeable factions of Muslim Christians and different sects within Islam that were against one another and uh, Palestinian resistance that was also uh kind of living there as refugees there was and marketed neighborhoods and all of that i mean we're nowhere near that and and messages all over the streets so the idea that the u.s is moving towards that i think is 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 i guess kind of objectively true like we are Mm. but i don't know if that's gonna happen in the near future um yeah Right. Well, and I think that highlights something that you, you do kind of get a better grasp on perhaps, you know, living overseas and, and kind of having an outside in perspective. Like you said, you, you spend a lot of your childhood overseas. And, and my experience is America can be, whether you're left, right, or center can be a kind of, in, you know, it's a large country, but it has a, a, a certain insularity because of its center in terms of global finance, culture, and, and, you know, Hollywood movies and what have you, right? There can be just a notion that everything kind of begins and ends in, in the United States. And, um, and, and it's a, when you bring up like, well, look, yeah, America's divided, but you know, we look at places like in the world and you're speaking your experiences in Lebanon. Um, we can obviously think about kind of ethnic conflict um, in other places in the world uh, that 
America is nowhere near broaching what for many people in the world experience as divided societies rooted in ethnicity or religion. And um, that um, Mm -hmm. by no means is the U.S. in the kind of most desperate category of these situations, which can obviously have a lot of other underlying kind of social and economic issues. When you were talking, I was thinking of one of my best friends uh, from graduate school who grew up in Kingston, Jamaica. And um, we we went to, I went to grad school at Temple and Mm. I'm saying, you know, uh, how how do you like, he he lived in North Philly right next to Temple. uh, And I said, you know, how do you like, you know, living in Philly? And he said, I love it. And I said, oh, that's cool. And I said, you know, well, what, what do you like about it? And he said, yeah, like, where I grew up in Kingston, he said, in Philly, you can walk anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, he said in Kingston, there was like a lot of kind of like bridges. And he said, you know, those there were armed guards at like every one of those. And like, if it wasn't your neighborhood, like, you know, you basically had to explain to someone who was armed often with like an automatic weapon, like why you needed to go into that neighborhood. Right. And yeah. just, you know, and I think, uh, uh, you know, and so I'm not, this isn't to minimize what's going on in the United States or, or if that is, that it's not saying it's not troubling, but again, I think there are other points of comparison that maybe makes one realize that I, I don't know if it's a good way to put it, but I mean, things can, are, are and can be a, quite a bit worse. And I think that's that's something that is always important to keep in mind. But as you mentioned, you know, the, it's not like you're going out in the street and encounter someone who has a different political view. You just like start arguing with them or like feel afraid of them by and large. Is that, was that what you're kind of getting at? Yeah, uh, something like that. Something that would, you know, and, and of course, I'm, I am doing it comparatively via internationally but even looking comparing uh, the US to its qualitatively to its history with division in society i really question whether we're at a place that's exceptional from other times in US society i wonder if a lot of it is uh, how much of this is media machination uh, reinventing what has always kind of been or maybe has possibly been more intense at times um and definitely still, of course, still marginalizing inner city voices in the process by mm. fixating on this this political left-right machination. Meanwhile, the political economy has left it so that the middle class has been squeezed and there's a lot more poverty than we've ever seen. And people mm. lining up for miles at food banks in Texas and here in Arizona, too. In fact, we're staying on a campground right now that's run by um, a guy that used to be a fire chief out east. He's, he's a fascinating person, this guy. He's an eccentric that lives off the land now. He's retired, but um, mm-hmm. he also runs a food bank, and he was talking about the, the numbers that are coming in there. So not to get up too off topic, but coming back to it, I don't think that uh, you know we're at any exceptional more hostility towards one another yeah. So, but it it does look like that, right? It does appear to mm. be like that. Um, and there's a lot of information there and a lot of argument to be made and, and to establish that in, in everyone's mind. So, and I am also susceptible to that argument and it's very cogent to say that, no, we are exceptional right now. This is mm. exceptional in nature. And I, I definitely see that in terms of the presidency and in terms of Senate leadership and electoral politics but I don't necessarily see that in within the people, within the population yet. Maybe that right. w- maybe we are approaching that though, um, and it you know there are so- some troubling signs there too in that regard. But I did want to ask you one thing. Sorry, hmm. to, um, you know we we're talking. You're talking about how Amer- like the U.S. is kind of trained in a way to to, to, to towards exceptionalism. Mm. I forget how you put it exactly, but like through the sort of corporate spectacle and. Um, other messaging 
you know, history, the, the kind of American mythos, it kind of engineers a particular, um, like insularity. That's yeah. And insularity. Right. And I wonder if that insularity keeps a society from being able to, to reflect on itself collectively. Right. Um, or, or perhaps gives it, in, in some ways, it, it provides at the same time kind of the data to measure, but also the tools to measure that data, right? It's, so everything right. kind of comes from the same source. And so yeah. it's like the data itself that is the source of, of our measurement um, and the kind of yardsticks or, you know, we have for, for evaluating that data are almost born of the same right. kind of and and I think that so it becomes the in and hence that's why I think of like is insularity right and in mm-hmm. even in a way that other societies often who if we think about societies in the global south or quote unquote developing countries they they just can't be that way because of the situation where there there is a lack of resources a lack of capital and they the need to find a way to interact and to in a sense draw in resources and investment i mean is a very real part of life in these countries that they just don't have the convenience of mm-hmm. being so inward looking right mm-hmm. it's just not it's not if you don't if you're struggling to get by and you need money and there's not a lot of domestic sources of capital and revenue that that has to come from somewhere and in in the current structure we have which is extremely problematic that often has to come from either aid foreign aid organizations or the private sector, um, mm-hmm. the, which is, it, again, I'm not celebrating this, but it, it's still, if we're talking about the here and now, that is something. And so I think, you know, by comparison, the United States is probably one of the countries that has, even though we draw a lot and, and are reliant on investment or loans from abroad, um, I, I just think uh, there's a certain amount of, of detachment. I mean, in mm-hmm. one and one way to think about it is in how much Americans would assume, and, and in some ways correctly so, that like the, the machinations of the Trump administration and Trump's elective and like Trump's tweets and whatever he's doing. You know, I mean, this whole Trump, Trump, everything, right? I mean, it, I, I never. I, I mean, I think we should just take like, have a day of no one in the world can say Trump. That's my proposal. <laughs> just everyone agrees, like nowhere, not yeah. not in text. Not, <laughs> we're just going to keep like one day, yeah, and, and myself included. I'm not. I, I'm saying I'm included in that. We all need like it's like a day of penance, right? <laughs> we, you we can't even not be in that day. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, it's like Yahweh, right? Yeah, yeah. you know, we just you can't say, and it's like the opposite. You can't say Yahweh because he's so great. Like you can't say Trump because he's so awful and deplorable, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, I think on another level, I always think, well, how you know, how many Americans are like really involving themselves with like the machinations and the kind of politics of what's going on in China right now with Xi Jinping yeah. and like what he's been doing. Americans are like, I don't know. And I'm like, well, China's as important now as the United States, if, if perhaps even increasingly more important in terms of its global reach and influence, at least in um, Eurasia and East Asia. Mm-hmm. And how many Americans are like following Xi Jinping? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. it's kind of interesting, you know, and I kind of, if you think about it that way, um, and I, and I had that kind of reflection, I was in Japan, I was teaching here in, at um, AIU in, in um, November of 2016. And I, I did a little um, kind of memory kind of, you know, uh, diary kind of entry on Facebook um, recently about that day as the next election day approached um, in 2020. 
And it's kind of about like the whole psychodrama of my day and kind of like what's going on and like having that experience yeah. overseas. The whole end of it is I finally get to my class at 3.30 and I'm like in this whole state, and I'm like, oh, we're going to have to talk about this. This is it's a class on Korean development. But at the same time, this is this huge earth shattering issue. And I walk into the classroom and like most yeah. of my students are like, you know, 20 year old Japanese students and they're like fitting on their phone. And, yeah, you know, I'm like, so what do you guys think about today? You want to talk about it? They're like, what, what do you mean? Right. <laughs> and, and to me, that was a lesson, you know, I mean, not to be cliche, like the students taught me something, but in that case, they really did. <laughs> yeah. They're like, yeah. look, well, you know, I'm a 21 year old in, you know, living in Japan. I don't care. I mean, oh yeah. Trump, he's weird. Ha ha. What an idiot. <laughs> right. Know. Right. You know, it's just like, you know, I mean, in that, in that to me was like a kind of, yes, uh, this is a big deal as an American that as a, but yeah, um, I, I think that, is it, and I think that's something that that is something that unites left and right. This kind of you mentioned that term exceptional, right? Mm-hmm. I mean that that is a that is something that kind of works its way into it. And I, and I think one other thing I wanted to kind of come back to and, and, and ask you a little bit more about it. Um, I think it's interesting, like you said, there can be this kind of, especially if we, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of mainline or mainstream media, they just look for the good old days and like making deals on the Senate. And if I hear one more time, someone talk about Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, and I just want, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm going to kind of like find some earplugs. I don't know. I just can't hear it anymore. And, and I mean, to me though, isn't the story not that difficult to grasp and, and and perhaps this is an issue. I'm saying perhaps ironically, of course, it's an issue of lack of minority representation in the media that, yeah, I mean, in the 50s, 60s and 70s, there was like a, a 95% plus were like middle-aged and older white men. Um, and they shared a lot of sensibilities, a lot of understandings of the world, a lot of views of race relations from not so good to repugnant. <laughs> yeah. That was kind of the, the, the spectrum of like, eh, kind of problematic to like repugnant and, and dangerous was kind of the views on, on race. And um, there was kind of a tepid agreement to kind of try to contain black Americans um, specifically um, as, as well as other minority groups. And now you have a lot of democracy, democratization, like the, the, the increasingly, and of course it's nowhere near on par, but increasingly the political representation and leadership in the country is slowly starting to reflect the actual demographic and racial, ethnic, gender, um, sexuality kind of breakdown of the country. And of course, that's going to lead to, you know, some discord. And, and, I, and I think of the, ironically, I say this in a, in a kind of tongue in cheek, but I think of, you know, Condoleezza Rice's ever famous birth pangs of democracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, like this is like, this is real <laughs> democracy. Yeah, it's going. Yeah. You're shaking up this club, and is it really shocking? And is it really shocking that like people like Ilhan Omar or Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, young, strong women of color, like the opposite of the former power structure? Is it shocking that they're like the targets of all this? Right. So, I don't know. What, I mean, what do you think? I mean, that's kind of going to your idea that things, uh, you know, what's different about now? And I think to me that that's the simplest answer. I don't know. What, what, what do you think about that? Right. Um, no, I agree with a lot of what you said. And of course, you know, a lot of these policies that have been gra- gaining progression over the years have been, you know, somewhat stifled um, by other forces. And uh, according to you know, I haven't necessarily researched the accuracy of these polls, but it seems that some important um, polls have reflected a growing consensus about you know healthcare for all, uh, free tuition. This is Bernie Sanders' platform that you know tests really good with the population. 
but the you know the the question for me has been how and why do these get stifled or somehow um, mangled, and what are the forces there that are doing that, and how does mm. that affect the rest of the population? And you know the qualitative differences. The difference qualitatively, I you know between the present and the previous um, you know eras, I guess. Yeah, there, I mean, look, look at one of the ma- major groups right now that I like the Sam Harris sort of intellectuals that are kind of indicating or calling out uh, the pr- progressive movement, sort of calling it you know this woke c- culture, and they right. and they simultaneously vilify uh, the MAGA culture, and they they kind of take this centrist, this sort of centrist um, voice. So I think that mm. might, that might, uh, what, uh, how I'm, the reason I'm bringing that up is because I feel like it indicates that there is a, a progressive movement that is articulated, that is seen, you know, I guess that's pretty obvious, but these, um, the progressive issues have been, have been, uh, more and more popular. Of course, they're not necessarily being, uh, delivered. They don't have a proper caravan or something to, to the national politics. Right. Uh, caravan. self-referential there as you're cruising around the west the desert west in the caravan i mentioned to george that that's kind of like it's almost a bit too much in terms of that's like the opening of every pandemic movie is like Uh someone like frantically driving in an rv across like the desert west um that's kind of in my mind every every disaster (laughs) movie begins that way (laughs) um and I mean, in some ways, I guess I, and I, I'm kind of now realizing that's actually the opening scene of um, uh, Independence. Oh, yeah. No, no, the, sure. <laughs> what's that show called? Um, uh, Walter White show. I'm not. <laughs> I'm leaving this in. Look, oh, you're yeah, seeing, Breaking this is Bad. The, Breaking Bad. Breaking yeah. Bad. This is it. Hey, for those of you in your 20s and 30s, um, this is what happens. This is I'm, I'm 43. Uh, I'm leaving this in. I'm not going to edit Thanks. that out. There's no shame there, George. We got to. Definitely. Um, you grow in wisdom, but you do miss a step. Right, right. But that is the opening scene of Breaking Bad. Um, is yeah. driving across the desert in an RV. So, oh yeah. Um, so well, since you brought him up, you know, I have I have my own views. I'm not that well versed in the Sam Harris universe, but what, what do you think about? You know, I mean, he is a figure. Let's, hey, George, let's punch up a little. Here we are in the caves of Altamira. Right now, we have zero listeners because we're recording the first episode. So let's punch up. Yeah, yeah. Okay up. I think that's cool. Um, yeah, put it in the details. There's a lot of Sam Harris listeners out there. He's got a huge following. George takes on Sam Harris in today's episode. You'll have probably, <laughs> but then you'll be vilified by his fanboys and it could be really ugly. I you know. know well, that. yeah. Hey, you know, I, if they want to come to Akita, you know, fair enough. Um, yeah. All right, go ahead. But what, yeah, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on, 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 uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't know where he just came from. I kind of uh, haven't really been thinking about him too much lately. But yeah, he kind of comes up every once in a while as being something like a, a phenomenon that's, to me, indicative of the like a progressive movement and the MAGA, because he kind of situates himself in the center. But I think he also plays to his fan base. I think his 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 following don't doesn't necessarily want to be with the you know the democratic socialist quote unquote practices of the far left <clears throat> they want to kind of remain within more um you know the, the closer to the ideas of privatization and so i think he plays to that and he considers the he panders to it 
but he's he's a massive intellect. He's a very very intelligent. But I wonder sometimes. Maybe there was this. There was a moment there where he challenged Noam Chomsky to to a debate. Are you familiar with this? Right. I saw this. Yes. Yeah, and 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 he's like, and Noam Chomsky, and he, and you know, I got to hand it to Sam Harris. He posted the the actual exchange on his website, so you could see mm. what exactly what Chomsky replied. And in my opinion, Chomsky kind of like, you know, I don't want to say he, he didn't. He just was very real about his answer and cut cut straight to reality and sort of shown a mirror to what I believe was Sam Harris's intent of more like this commercial um, uh, aggrandization of himself. I'm debating with Noam Chomsky, therefore I'm becoming, he's using Noam Chomsky to make himself a name in a higher level of history. And, and, and Chomsky saw for what it was. He was like, I have nothing to debate with you about anything. Why would you even ask me of, (laughs) I mean, I'm definitely paraphrasing, but uh, I'm not going to let him punch up. I'm not, Chomsky's (laughs) like, I'm not going to let you punch up. Exactly. I'm blocking your your upward punches. (laughs) Right. I step on them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we're like, we're at the rungs here. We're punching up to Sam Harris and he's trying to punch up to Chomsky, you know? Damn, that's exactly Uh, what's, Sam Harris, if you're listening, I challenge you to a debate. (laughs) Well, he actually, you know, in in terms of um, a little bit more uh, revealing, um, again, speaking of fanboys, I'm a bit of an Ezra Klein fanboy, I have to admit. Yeah, Um, he's fantastic. Yeah. And he had a, a, a quite a to do with Sam Harris, and they actually had about an hour and a half right. conversation, uh, which was fan- and I, I, you know, I'm I'm obviously going to come down on the Ezra Klein side uh, almost every time. Well, I mean, to me, and and you're being a lot nicer than you know, I feel bad because I, I just think Sam Harrison is a total charlatan. Um, okay, I just, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I was going to kind of, I mean, I just like, yeah. <laughs> I, well, look, I would say that you know, and and this is I'm not trying to. It's funny because academics, myself included, we rail against like how insular, speaking of insularity, and we kind of are protective of our areas. But no, I'm going to brandish that like, look, I spent a better part of my life studying politics, history, global politics, global history, economics. And Sam Harris just doesn't know what in the world he is talking about. Yeah, um, it's just it's a historical. I mean, Sam Harris is as an informative source on politics and, and history, um, as I would be an informative source, I guess his field is neuroscience. Yeah. If I went to a neuroscience conference, I would sound like an idiot. Yeah. Because I don't know anything. And Sam Harris, you know, and that's not, not meaning, and this is the key part, like take Chomsky. Chomsky's background is in, in his, his academic work isn't in um, politics or, or social, you know, in, in political science or, you know, sociology even, but he did the work. Yeah. I mean, he's just an authority. Yeah. That's a scholar. I mean, he's like, I want to, I want to be involved in these debates. And I mean, he has an encyclopedic knowledge of like history and figures and can tell you about leaders and like, you know, Cambodia in 1960s. And mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. so he, you know, th- th- it's not like, oh, you have to have a PhD in this to talk about it. That's stupid, of course. But if you don't, well, then learn something. Right. So, I mean, so, I mean, that's where I think Chomsky's coming from. It's like, you don't even know anything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, um, you know it's funny. And, and this will be my, I don't want to, I don't want to make this too much about Sam Harris. So this is kind of my, thing. it's funny because his whole thing is like the people who are open to people being religious or like give space to religious people are the worst because they give comfort to this like awful thing. Right. He hates religion. Right. Yada, yada. Right. And it's like, it's like, you know, when we talk about Islamophobia and, and violence and, and threats against Muslim Americans and, and, and other places around the world, um, he is the worst because he tries to give this pseudo intellectual mm-hmm. sanction 
to feeling a civilizational kind of superiority mm-hmm. um, of kind of Western intellect and, and mind um, vis-a-vis Arab or, or even the wider, um, you know, not just Arab culture in, in history, but also just Muslims, which is, a, um, and I think that, so he is pernicious in the very way he accuses others of being pernicious. And so, you know, don't get in a pernicious off with me, Mr. Harris. <laughs> okay. Enough. I'm, I'm sorry. So in some ways, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. No, oh my god if nothing I else I, I forgot how funny you were this is awesome I'm I'm, I'm, <laughs> well i feel like i'm gonna you know in a, in a perfect world we're gonna have 100 listeners it's all gonna be sam harris hater like lovers like hating on me. that's all that's all i'm gonna have if the case of altamira is gonna be a site of like people who like sam harris hating on me i'm um, fair enough hey i'm an assistant professor at a small liberal arts college in northern japan you know so uh, come at me bros yeah as they say. I, okay. One area that I, and I'm interested to, really interested to hear your thoughts on this, because I think what, one thing that I find, I don't know if concerning is the right word. I, you know, that word has become well overused, but it is <laughs> potentially an issue mm-hmm. is it seems to me that, okay, you have like the kind of Bill Clinton vision um, of the democratic party, the democratic leadership council, for those of us who are um, children of the 1990s, right? Which was like the, the political arm that Bill Clinton kind of emerged from and Al Gore emerged from, which was this idea of kind of embracing markets, embracing kind of this idea of trying to reduce government social expenditures, maybe not as much as the Republicans, but um, trying to be responsible about the budget and, and, and all of these things. Right. Uh, and, there, those forces in the Democratic Party still exist. Now, Biden has an interesting relation with those forces where he's kind of got a toe in and a toe out. I mean, that's where Biden's been his whole career, right? Um, he's kind of had a toe in, in in a few different places. I mean, he gets along with kind of rabid segregationists, but he was also quite friendly with Bernie Sanders, which I think in some ways is emblematic of how kind of Joe Biden rolls. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's, he's, he's kind of got his toes in, in a few different pools, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. So there is that faction, right? And, and where Biden's going to fall in that, that. What's that? I said, that's an important identification that uh, I think that b- b- people appropriate the other side for their own, um, for their own benefit. Yeah. What, what I mean by that is like a lot of people will, yeah, well, on the left, will will point out how, how Biden tended to be um, in bed with segregationism, segregationists, right. but also, but then also in the center, they'll say the opposite. Look at Biden; he's friends with Bernie Sanders, and he's kind of a rat. So, yeah, that, that that's another one of those issues that's made to be contentious and div- divisive within the Democratic Party right. is who Joe Biden is. Um, but right. I think you you did a great job of identifying that he's all those things, and that's right. Him. Um, and that's a kind of you know unifying message or unifying sort of reflection that I think is lacking in everything over here. It's incredible. And sorry to take you off. T- no, your- no, go ahead. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. yeah. No, no. Just the, 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 I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's just so, um, how media attempt very particularly, uh, begins to take apart every issue and figure out how to sell it, how to sell it like meat to that, to one particular audience and how to take the, mm-hmm. you know, the shoulder and sell it to this particular audience in terms of their own propaganda and what feeds them. Um, mm-hmm. So they rip apart the whole thing and they fail to tell everybody it's the same thing. Uh, in other words. So you see this kind of divisiveness playing out in the media. It's this, um, and I, you know, I was gone from the States for over 10 years uh, right. and seven really solidly for seven. I didn't come back to the States at all because I was going to school in the summers. 
mm. uh, for seven years. But coming back and seeing the advancement, I, I was gone before the iPhone made made its impact. I that was the year that I left. Um, mm. and seeing that, seeing the social media revolution and the media and the news media, news social media revolution that's happening. I mean, it's ubiquitous. The constant streaming of information that's been matched totally by the constant. Uh, changes of story, the the, mm. the the need for you know incredibly more uh, content, um, right. the, the man the, the the manufacture the fabrication of content. It's really a lot of it's fabrication, mm. not all of it, but a lot of the, the what's fabricated isn't necessarily the event, but the um, the tonality, the div- right. the divisive nature that's ma- f- fabricated. You don't have to present it like this. But of course, you know, the media business model works as it always has, except now it's ubiquitous and, and needs more content. So it's just intensified. Right. Well, that, and I mean, just, just building on that, um, I think that points to, uh, you know, some broader issues that we see in terms of public discourse and even some of the ways that it's discussed um, in, in kind of left or left of center circles is, I don't, again, I don't want to get too um, epistemological here. I, I'm going to try to avoid that. But I think this is, again, where like these kinds of things like epistemology and the, the, the kind of lived reality of the now are very much in conversation, yet we're not conscientiously talking about these kinds of questions. And you know, the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, and I always make this in my classes, like facts don't tell us what, what they mean. Right. Yeah. So when I when I, I understand because Trump lies so much and because of all, all of this nonsense that there is this kind of agenda to point out there are real facts, there is truth. And I'm on board with that somewhat, but I'm also think that that can obscure that going to one of my favorite uh, lines from uh, a song from Cross-Eyed and Painless by Talking Heads, right? Facts all come with points of view. Yeah. Like facts just Facts just don't, you know, the, 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 that famous line, the facts speak for themselves. Well, sometimes, but very often they don't. Yeah. And there's a, there's a trillions and trillions in, in, of facts. So even the process of selecting facts is, you know, mobilizing it. And I don't think, to me, that doesn't mean that the information is tainted, but it means that we can't, you know, if the goal is like, oh, if we could just, I mean, sometimes I think this is, again, a kind of fantasy of, of, of people in the left or even more probably like the, the, the uh, egghead academic left. Maybe that's, maybe that's me and maybe that's us. I don't know. <laughs> but it's like if, we, if everyone just knew all the facts, right, yeah. we'd, we'd be all fine. And like, yeah. I, I don't think that's really what's going on here. And in some ways, and this is going to, you know, maybe throw a little controversy into our first episode. Uh, I want to defend, um, uh, what's her name? Oh, God, I'm doing this again. <laughs> the woman who, uh, um, the woman who, not McEnany, but the the woman who is a campaign advisor, um, Sarah Huckabee. Oh. No, not Huckabee. The other the woman, she got she she got COVID. Oh, oh um, <laughs> what's her name? Not, well, I, I mean, who isn't under COVID? I can't. There's, right. there's, there's <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, that's not a good way to narrow it down. Yeah. Oh, right. oh, her husband is the attorney in the Lincoln Project. Um, oh, uh, Kellyanne Conway. Yeah, Kellyanne Conway. I'm leaving this all in, folks. Welcome to the 40s. <laughs> you know, uh, I was you know, hoping um, you were talking about Kimberly Guilfoyle, who's <laughs> who's like speech at the Whoa. RNC was. I I don't know. Hey, hey, George, we're trying to keep the show. We're trying to keep the show a family family oriented. We're not going to get into Guilfoyle. Wow, <laughs> right? That's <laughs> up there. That's some, like, that's some serious. <laughs> 
political <laughs> smut. Yeah, that is, uh, I'm not touching that. Um, so Kellyanne Conway, right? Of course, the famous alternative facts, and of course, I think what you know, the context of what she said, it was ridiculous. But yeah. yes, there are alternative facts. I.e., like you know, you mobilize facts to try to make a point. Yeah, I don't. That's what democracy is. So I, I'm not defending the way she used it, but I am defending, you know, this idea that there's only one set of facts is ridiculous. Yeah, of course that's, you know, and and I think that is, and in some ways, so I'm not, I, I, and with, this is the nuance, and I, I'll kind of shut up after this, I promise. But it's like uh-huh. we, it seems, and this maybe this is good. We're kind of can, can kind of parlay this into a little bit more of a getting into a closing out with some kind of philosophical kind of discussion of this, but we don't want to fall in the trap where it's like this nihilism of like, well, if, if, you know, there's all these facts we can play and then there's no meaning. And I don't think that's the case, but I think it's, it's a certain kind of humility, right. That, that, that getting to truth or getting to the best policy is not a process of assembling all the right facts or data. And I, I feel weird even having to defend that point, but it seems increasingly um, if we look at like the kind of, tech view and again kind of sometimes the the kind of um professional left i think there's this idea that like what went wrong in the trump administration is that like you know it was just people lost touch with facts and i think that's partly true but i think it it, it's it's like narrowly true but broadly wrong if that makes sense i don't know what do you think about this Mm -hmm. i'm I'm kind of bumbling on about epistemology and like what are facts and like you know but one of my favorite definitions of politics maybe to kind of make it clear is like ee schneider wrote a book called the semi semi-sovereign people in the 1950s and he called it said politics is the mobilization of bias mm-hmm. that anyone who says like can we just get politics out of this and just talk about the facts that's a political statement mm-hmm. you know so i i just think like i i think we need to embrace the political as a debate about the good <laughs> Yeah, the, the, that that quote is is great, um, and I also have my view of politics as being like a vector through which a bias can come in, a, uh, like a, on a on a discursive level, um, a vector through which philosophy comes in can can come mm. in too, uh, uh, through which also other like you know phantasms of the population can come through. Polit- I think politics is a synthesizes a lot of. Uh, major elements of society, and it is the vector through which uh, you could say thought or ideology and everything in between can kind of mm. flow through politics, and into and then it trains the population. And in that training, there is a you know an administered set of facts, like you say, and those right. facts are to be understood. And that's you know, and this idea of of multiple sets of facts. Yeah, I mean, I I I see that as well. I see that, and I see that there is a proliferation of quote unquote facts. Um, and there's facts that are, you know, reflective of the empirical world. And then there's people, and then there's facts that are, but it's, and, and that there's also the, the problem of their assembly and how they're put in, put in, put into mm. a linear narrative in a particular way to convince you of what's occurred. Yeah. I'm also, um, aware of that. There is that, th- there is of course that effort underway by, by parties, but there's another, there's other tools at work here and um, that are trying by, by another strategy or I should say another tactic in the strategy to get power. Is not necessarily only the proliferation of facts or, but it's also the um, vilification of facts or, or rather, you know, telling people that uh, somehow um, the experts don't necessarily have the say who's to say that they're, who's to say you're supposed to listen to an expert. You can make your own facts. Uh, what was Colbert was talking about 
He was like, um, you know, the Panama Canal was 1914. I say it's 1941. Who are you to right. tell me differently? You know, no, like, oh, <laughs> yeah. So I think that is absolutely, I agree. I, I'm fully on board with what you're saying. And that obviously, and, and I think Anne Applebaum, um, who's, you know, just become a superstar and just one of the most important kind of thinkers, um, public, you know, kind of intellects in our time, writes a lot about like these lies um, and Trump's lying or like authoritarians lying is not about even getting you to believe something that isn't true. It's that, that they can lie to you so brazenly uh, is itself the power. Right. right? That's, I mean, yeah, that, that, that's a, that's perfect. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about lately, actually, is that, the ability, the, the 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 possibility first that someone isn't reflecting anything but a discourse purely and simply because they know that you'll buy it. I I said I think in some ways, like you're saying, it, it can be like there are real things. Like we were talking about, like the year something happened, or like how many people are at Trump's inauguration. Mm. I mean, like I I I do believe right. in those, and I think, but I think in some ways. What what I my view is is like we're getting kind of like that trains us on like what I consider the like epistemological low hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. yes, the, I agree, and, but I'm saying it's important to to affirm that and not to like give up those fights. Like, no, Trump, you you didn't have this many people at your inauguration. I, I I'm not like debasing that or even criticizing that, but I'm saying that's a very low hanging fruit. But once we kind of move up the tree, I mean, uh, th- maybe to give like the classic example of like what kind of what the what I'm trying to get at is like someone who's really has struggling on economic times who like steals a loaf of bread to give to their hungry children. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a fact. They, they are a thief. They robbed a store. That is a fact. Mm-hmm. It is also a fact that they are currently struggling and, and are doing this out of desperation um, and hard times to feed their needy family. Right. I can choose what fa- I mean. So I could just say that person is a thief and I'm not lying. Mm-hmm. Or I could say that person is on hard times and needs to be seen in a compassionate way, not in a way that someone's just stealing for gratification or personal so gain. So you're suggesting, so, I mean, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, say, no, go ahead. So you're suggesting that in the case of Trump to um, let's try to think of a more creative explanation or interpretation of, of him as a, you um, know. Yes. Or in, in some ways, like what I'm or, saying is that taking, t- taking a more empathetic, uh, empathic um, view or taking the opposite of the empath or try to, I guess, try to try to take multiple perspectives on a particular person or situation. Um, not so. I mean, maybe in the kind of what, what I guess maybe better said is that like yeah, please. Trump, Trump has exposed the importance of these kinds of what I would to use the metaphor again, like the low hanging fruit of like, what are facts? And I think mm-hmm. so. And, and if the way yeah. Trump's in the stories, he has exposed that those need to be defended. Got and, you. Okay. Yeah, okay. Like, I understand. I'm sick, I want to go to the doctor. Yeah. You know, I want to go to someone with medical training and like, I'm going to believe, you know, scientific information about climate change. Like in, and I, and in some ways to me though, those are the easy questions because what, you know, maybe this is kind of where I wanted to turn to towards the end is if we are talking about kind of, some aspect of Trump's movement. And, and this has been, you know, what hasn't been, what's been underplayed is not just, it's not just Trump voters. I mean, the widespread disillusionment, disillusionment in the United States and a kind of, you know, a certain kind of sadness across the society. And I think that those issues, which, which could be, again, which affect, you know, that seems to be an equal kind of opportunity problem in terms of rabid Democrats or even left people and, MAGA land and, and what have you is, and, and to me, the kinds of way out of that isn't through necessarily just getting the facts right. 
right? So getting the facts right can solve a lot of problems. I'm, I'm not like, I'm not a postmodern, you know, like there is no kind of true reality or, or, you know, everything is, is relative. I'm personally, I'm not even, you know, saying that's wrong or for anyone to have that view, but that's not my view. I mean, I, I am a, I have that kind of basis, but I think as we move up the chain and we get to this issue of kind of disillusionment, Mm -hmm. the kind of morosity in the country, the sense of, of people feeling stasis, both, um, not only financially and economically, but also emotionally. And I think facts aren't, and data to go back to like that, aren't the way you know, aren't a path out of that. I don't know what it is. I'm not going to be so pres- well, know, the, arrogant. I, I agree. Well, yeah. 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 I just want to add, uh, uh, I guess, um, add a note to that, uh, or inspect it a little bit. Like, uh, how can a society, how can a, a population or a collective that is attempting to, to, uh, to work together to, they're working in interdependency to some extent mm. with one another. Mm. How can they move forward if, if, parts of those pockets of those begin to if the ground under which they are moving isn't agreed upon anymore if there is a um a sort of uh not not a reputation necessarily of the facts but of anything that you tell me anything that you say it's it's a it's a it's it's sort of a it's a dis disillusionment at the at the level of ethos and not necessarily even at the like it's you know, and and I'm not trying to get to the cult argument yet, and I'm not sure about that either. But right. there is like there there seems to be a growing, um, you know. Earlier, what I was saying is that there isn't this animosity yet, you know. And I'm giving that word, I'm giving the quali- qualifier of yet, uh, but right. there definitely is a growing, mm. and 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 in my my world personally, I've seen a growing rift mm. um, over selecting a whole, not necessarily just facts themselves, but a rejection of, 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 um, of the speaker, of the speaker right. uh, wholesale, you know, we're not listening to anything you say, you, everything you say is wrong. And, and, uh, and, you know, both sides are kind of saying that, you know, to, right. to some extent at one another. And one of the things I've mm. always wondered is, 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 have we gone through the looking glass or is there some sort of, um, what's going on there and why is that? I know there's right. multiple contingencies and, there's there's a multiple things at play there. I I can speak to a couple of them. There's I can I can speculate on a lot of them, which is a lot of fun. But um, I I think that the only way for me to sort of assess it the best is to begin at the empirical level, to begin mm. to and and then extrapolate to philosophy. So it's sort of inductive, an inductive approach yeah. where some friends of mine have relied on a more philosophical less data-driven take they don't want to necessarily look at like the particular particularities of history and um the 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 effects of the very present to talk about things they want to keep it at a philosophical uh level and 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 then and data be damned you know the the amount of information that you can you can you know um derive from let's say a consensus a poll a how many people in the population believe this to be true you can get a lot of information from that and to disregard mm-hmm. that. I mean, and, and by information, I don't mean necessarily reality, quote unquote, this is real. I mean, right. this is what they are expressing. So if, the, if mm. they are expressing that, what does that leave us with? What- I think, where do you start? Maybe, maybe I'll, uh, I'll try to back up a little bit here and kind of put my cards on the table, at least some of them. 
Uh, I mean, sure. I think a lot of what, you know, what, what, you know, I like to read, you know, fantasy books when I have time. Um, you know, some, some, it, I'm not a huge fantasy person, but I have read some <laughs> nice. really good series. And like, and yeah, part of fantasy is like watching someone because I like politics and I like, you know, like, I guess I'm a social scientist or whatever. I'm really interested in like the mechanics of how societies operate and how society, like, I think of societies, like what I'm really interested in is like the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, how do we, how do yeah. we, you know, and I, like you're saying, like, and in, in, in some ways that to me is like the, 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 that's why fantasy books are so interesting because it's kind of like creating, we do create worlds. We create, you know, we create a story about a world and that world involves, as you mentioned, some baseline facts, some material reality. I mean, there's not, it's not to me, it's not like disconnected. Um, and, and in some ways, I, I guess I'm, I'm looking, you know, and so you could look if we if we wanted to kind of use this metaphor, like we're we're kind of erecting different worlds, right? And 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 in some ways, part of the allure of kind of what we're seeing in MAGA world, and I think again, in some ways, I need to believe in like empirical kind of data and information to make this argument that like you can empirically see that like a certain portion of MAGA world is like in the process of world building. Right, they're making their own, and it's and it's in some ways kind of like a, this real time experiment, and I, it probably a lot of this grows out of like you're saying, this technology that really took off with the advent of the iPhone when we started carrying around like powerful computers, and um, I and and I think what you're saying is like if if we don't have that kind of baseline there, there, of like th- th- that's part of it. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that's like you know I think that there's so many contingencies. You know, there's so right. many. I, I can't the 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 ability for some and I and, and you know I, I'm probably guilty of this as well uh, to make these sweeping um, sort of like statements of understanding. This is why it is. I find that to be very difficult to grapple with. I'm like, man, there, there's just everything is. There's so many big events. Nine eleven, uh, for example, you know, you know that th- that event created a massive new discourse from which politi- politicians could take from in order to exercise mm. or gain power. Um, that right. th- and that's massive. That that's such a huge development in electoral politics and and power um, accumulation. That's not talked about neoliberalism. You know, the it's almost cliche to bring up anymore. Um, but right. like that is a that's a massive you know uh, economic system that is mm. basically forming a more atomized society. And you can see it in America. The decimation of community um, because of a variety of issues that's, that that comes from this sort of um, advancement of capitalism. And we could talk about that for hours, I'm sure. And, right. and we're barely scratching the surface of your main topic here. Right, well, well, no, in some ways we are getting, you know, we're digging into this. This is good. So I guess yeah. kind of, on that point, yes, like, you know, these are such complex phenomenon and, and there's not like a kind of master key. And that is perhaps a problem with, with kind of particularly in the media narrative. Like, let's go to a bar in Ohio, you know, your home state, and like, let's talk to some locals. And that will really give us the key to understanding this Trump phenomenon. I mean, yeah. I think it's good to go out and talk to people and get their perspective. I, I You know, I, I think that kind of approach is not useless, but it's not going to give you some master key. So I, I, I think that's absolutely true. I guess what, where I kind of, and this is wedging in my own kind of projects or, or right, you know, right. hobby. Oh, and I've, I've been spending a lot of time, like really digging back and reading kind of just these classic works in political economy by Marx, by Adam Smith, um, yeah. Ricardo, 
and and uh, you know particularly David Hume I've been really reading a lot recently and like yeah what's really interesting is that like the problems they're talking about are very similar to the problems we have now totally but because it's relatively new and kind of novel they're speaking about it in such an unvarnished way and what reading Hume on political economy or Hume on ethics or Adam Smith on the division of labor or Marx on the, the role of work in, in human actualization. They're writing about these things in, in such a less, in such a much more unvarnished way. Mm. And, and it, in some ways, you know, looking back, and again, this sounds so cliche, but like looking back into these works provides like a much clearer window into our present, at Definitely. least for me. And, and I, I think of these people as kind of um, for right or for better or for not, and and certainly it's a, a a a Western you know white man's kind of project intellectually. If we go back to to these this period, this you know the 18th and 19th century European kind of political and economic thought and theory, mm-hmm. um, it, there are world builders. Right. I mean, I read Adam Smith. I mean, they're they're uh, you know using this fantasy metaphor um, or motif. Like there there are world builders, and I think to me. And I think this can be, you know, connected back to the here and now. So I'm not trying to go like meta and all, like you're saying, just keep it philosophical, but understanding the actual problems like people getting like the massive drug issues, um, massive disregard for poverty, racial discrimination, like these very visceral, real politics, I think are rooted in this kind of world that we've built in the kind of the the architecture, intellectual and kind of in, 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 in that way be it MAGA land or, or others. And I'm not trying to draw equivalences here before I can, I can imagine people saying, well, you're saying MAGA and, and, and left. I, I'm, 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 I guess, whatever, if you want to put me on that, I, I would guess I'm pretty far left or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, but that doesn't, I mean, I think that's irrelevant to this discussion. I, yeah. I, don't, I guess I don't want to mention it, but yeah. I, I think in some ways they're, they're kind of, outgrowth of this broader world that we've built. And, and, and that's why I've been really working. I'm, I'm working on an essay now on the division of labor. That's why I'm kind of like jamming in my own. So my kind of, and I, I want to hear your thoughts on this, George, this is a, a work in progress. I've been, I mean, I think the division of labor, if we, if to, the, to the extent there is some master key, if we use division of labor, I mean, we have this idea that like, ultimately there has to be people in the, in the quote unquote, lower rungs of society and they have to be staffed mm-hmm. and they have to be filled. And, so long as kind of we assign in and there's an implicit notion of someone's social worth or value, um, perhaps as realized in income. And I mean, I've been drawing a lot from Marx here. Mm. And even Adam Smith was quite concerned about this. I mean, what's interesting, if you, if you actually, people who actually read Adam Smith, yeah, I have realized that he found the division of labor. He was quite concerned and he thought, like, look, this is going to be awful. Like, people working mm. in factories doing the same thing over and over. Hey, hey, and hey, all, let me, let me, all Adam Smith. Let me just finish. Yeah, yeah. All Adam Smith can really come up with, he says, well, this is probably not, this is a pretty poor way to live. I, I, I can see, you know, I'm kind of obviously paraphrasing or kind of, but this is not ideal. This is like, this is yeah, going to yeah. lead to people doing these repetitive things, but it's going to create so much prosperity that that is worth the kind of sacrifice in terms of human dignity that this kind of labor and having this this kind of division of labor society is going to impart. And I think we've accepted that deal. And so much mm. of our world is built upon, premised upon that deal, that yeah. this is worth it. And that our labor has become, to use Mark's term, alienating, dehumanizing for many people. And that tension is something that that affects people, be it left, right, MAGA land, or what have you. I don't know. So, th- what, what do you think? That's kind of m- what I'm where I'm coming from. I oh, guess. I love it. It's 
you know, it's pretty like the Faustian pact of uh, modernity was this right. the, the, the division of labor. Um, maybe I'm making it a little dra- dramatic, but no, you know, that's, I, and of course, what I'm saying is nothing new. I mean, I, I like this idea that I forget one one philosopher said, you know, hasn't someone said this before? He said nothing new. You know, we just come back to the same things over and over again. So I'm just rearticulating, right. hopefully, in my own way, these things that have gone on. But right. go ahead, sorry to interrupt. Guess what? Um, yeah, the, the one thing that I was. Uh, I was going to interject there was how you were regarding Adam Smith through, you know, regarding Adam Smith's, um, you know, perspective or experience there. And, and it's funny because it looks like, yeah, he was observing, right. He was recording what he saw was this, this sort of emerging, um, way of doing a bit of marketplace. Uh, mm. and he was recording his, his, his view of it. Right, so, right. I don't mean to suggest that he was, you know, an innocent, you know, observer just objectively recording. Of course, he was recording it in a particular way and under a modality um, of the times. But that's that's not to say that what he what he did was advance a directive. He was advancing an observation, an empirical study um, right. of of society at that time. That was. You know, what he saw was the emergence of complicated marketplaces that people were benefiting right. from, and he was pondering what that was all about. So it's important to, I think, to regard it in those terms, to remember that it was, and it, when I, again, when, when I say empirical, to get back to the epistemological argument, it was empirical mm. by the viewpoint of the Scottish Enlightenment, um, right. by, by, these, by what they were sort of looking to cultivate as well, but that nonetheless, the events were happening. Um, a marketplace was forming, and he sat down and wrote about it and mentioned the invisible hand somewhere, you know, deep in the book. And now we have the, you know, the whole discursive field of e- economics, and then the economic state, and you know, now I can, right, but that's now I can order a taco copter <laughs> from Amazon along with a new pair of chacos and uh, be there like you know that afternoon. Right. Yes. The the fruits of the Scottish Enlightenment. Thanks. <laughs> No, um, but I think actually, George, I think it's that and just, you know, in my view, just a little bit more. I mean, I think yeah, it's yeah. so telling that Adam Smith was a moral philosopher. Absolutely. He wasn't in a yeah, and, and I think what Adam Smith was trying to do, and, and if you go, you know, the first chapter of the, of the Wealth of Nations is wrought with a kind of ethical defense mm-hmm. of the division of labor. Right. I think what, yeah. what Adam Smith was trying to do as a moral philosopher and in a theory of moral sentiments, I mean, which is more dedicated work on, on morality, was to try to etch out how this is compatible with existing kind of human moral sentiment, mm-hmm. right? That that it, and, and in some ways can be beneficial to the good. And I mean, he has this kind of, you know, and that's what I'm saying, like, in some ways, the arguments are much more explicit. Like, yeah, you're going to have these dregs of society who do this really shitty work. And, that, and I, I'm just really kind of hyper paraphrasing. <laughs> but he's saying, he's saying, look, that sucks. And like, I, it seems like a pretty abysmal way to live. But the the poorest shop he literally says this in the in the first chapter of wealth of nations the poorest shop worker in um the united kingdom Burke will be wealthier living. than a yeah than a king in, in africa or something yeah yeah which carries with it all the bigotry and, and you know so forth but i think it's so telling that that's what he comes up with he's providing a a a, a, a description as you mentioned and in, in a rigorous kind of empirical description of the, the modern industrial capitalist system and society, but but behind all of that is it is this you know forthright moral defense of it, right? Um, and, and I think that moral defense is still the kind of defense of why are there poor people? Why are there poor countries? Mm-hmm. 
you know, because to me, that's uh, the problem we haven't really solved. And, and I'm, I'm kind of, and this is where I guess, I guess I get a little bit more radical because I, I'm saying the, you know, the whole very notion of tying income to one's place in the division of labor is, I don't think it's, I think it's expedient economically, but I'm not sure what moral root, like how it can be morally rectified in, in, in terms of an ethical system. I think we just kind of, and the one way we do that is ignore ethics mm-hmm. and just say, well, it, it, it's ethical because, I mean, in some ways it's, it's a kind of tautology, right? Like mm. if it produces more, it's ethical. This produces more, so it's ethical. Right. Or, or, or kind of ethics by like, you know, assumption or kind of ascriptive definition. Mm-hmm. Like it's ethical because it makes more more products. Like you said, you're, you're what did you get from Amazon again? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, a taco copter, which was it's totally. <laughs> a taco copter. Uh, yeah, they, 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 they. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's like a, a society that can produce and deliver a taco copter. Exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, a king in Egypt couldn't have got a taco copter. So you're definitely living a better life, man. Lighten up. <laughs> well, and this is the game I always play. Like it's like three questions, and you're back to Plato, right? Yeah. So I get that from like students these days. I want to get give me what works, and I'm like, well, how do you define what works? Well, what works is what's good for people. Okay, we're back to Plato. Right. Right. And yeah. not that not we're back to Plato that Plato's right, but the questions Plato discussed: what yeah. is the good life? What yeah. is the good society? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm with Hume on that. I don't think, and I mean, that's, you know, Hume's famous kind of dictum, no ought can come from is is. Right. I don't think all of the data in the world and all of the facts in the world can answer that question for us. It can give us information to form ethical and moral judgments, of course, but it can't tell us what they should be. I guess. So, yeah, I want to, what do you think? I mean, that's I kind it. of my, yeah. So I, I think. No, it's I a great I conversation. Not, and I, I do have the, um, uh, you know, this idea about, Adam Smith and and bringing up these topics and how he presented that information was this idea that the, there wasn't really relativism. The, the, the idea of like what makes a good life, I don't know if you can compare that across histories or across across um, nationalities or epochs, right? I, I don't know right. how, I, I, what's the metrics for it. What's the nature of these metrics? That's you know, right. I guess that's your question, and um, I know I'd say I think it's an important question. I mm. you know. I've got some answers to it that I probably shouldn't discuss on a podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm intrigued. Well, I mean, hey. <laughs> I've got some theories about how to make things groovy, you know, for a few days on end. Right. Uh, but no, you, you know, like Nietzsche, he talks about the will to power and following your will to power is, is really, you know, his philosophy, this, right. to recognize what it is that makes you feel increase. That makes you feel mm. bigger. That makes you feel um, not necessarily l- powerful, as in the currency of power, but just makes you feel more you. And right. uh, and 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 to, and to do that. And I've always wondered about that. You know, I've 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 read about I've read this the, the will to power in various ways over for years. And I've often wondered mm. about how that could play out if everybody in a society were to do that. Of course, he's not writing to everybody he's writing to only the people that can read his his work rather and when he thought that the, this the, the the course he had pursued like this true authentic like course was really going to be limitedly applicable even right. if everyone could read it there yeah. was only you know the classic you know many are called but few are chosen right or few yeah. choose themselves right to put it right in right to kind of right, right. Kind of enter this 
Yeah, no, and I, I've been talking. My my wife's recently gotten interested in Nietzsche, and so we've been kind of having some chats about him and the complexity of his thought. And right, you know, and, and I think you know, in some ways, he's in conversation with Plato, right, saying that like there isn't a good, you know, there is no just world. There are many just worlds. Exactly, and, like, you have yeah. to kind of erect your own way to be good or way to be just and, and so forth. And it, it does have that kind of radical um, departure where, but it doesn't devolve into nihilism, right? And, and so in some ways, I, that's one part I like about Nietzsche. Yeah. He defends kind of complexity and nuance and, 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 and pushes back against some absolute vision of the good, but he certainly does not feel that that necessitates a kind of descent into nihilism. There's um there's another guy that I, I you know uh, now I have to dirty the waters a little bit I don't know why I feel dirty him up sorry to do this but um it seems applicable oh. here because it's a it's a voice that has become more and more popular the year over the years and he's sort of in the same class as Sam Harris as this sort of um, pseudo authority uh, more self proclaimed authority who has right. you know, swallowed a thesaurus and eaten a bottle of Adderall um, is Jordan Peterson. <laughs> Uh, I, oh, that guy! Oh, that! I mean, that yeah, you're guy. getting real dirty. Right, that is dirty. I'm sorry to do that, but you know, he. I mean, he makes Sam Harris look hella woke, yo. Right, right. He totally does. Um, and he's kind of fallen off the uh, the conversation. I think since Zizek sort of trashed him in a debate. Mm. Um, but he he has this thing, and and I see it commonly repeated in a lot of the classical philosophers that I've read. Um, they kind of make the same sort of lazy idea of comparing. Um, conditions across histories or across epochs, right. across nations. And there's no relativism in, in, in Jordan Peterson's philosophy. There's no, I, I, you, I have to, you compare yourself, your lot to the, to the lot of those people around you. He doesn't make any right. sort of um, allowance for that. It's just like these objective terms, you know, somebody making $30,000 a year in America. Well, they can, they have so much more than somebody making, you know, and the average right. Filipino or something like that. And it's, he's taking it, he's taking well-being to, uh, uh, to be a historical where it's, it's so, right. um, it's so reflective of the society around you. And I mean that and on, on, on very material or very real levels here, like not abstractly. I mean, when you were, or when you feel that you're with other people, when you're with them, when you're with them mm. on, a, on multiple levels, you feel a sense of calm um, a sense of belonging. You have a, I don't know, that's uh, maybe I'm putting a lot of words out there in people's mouths, but at least I do. And, um, and I think that community is based on that sense of witness, um, of being mm. to, to, togetherness and th yeah. So to disregard that, to disregard to right. the, sense of, the sense of togetherness seems to me to be, I don't know, self-serving for the, whatever things that they're trying to do, which is sell books. No, not for <laughs> sure. And, and and I think, you know, one one kind of kind of metaphor I like and in and, and, and some level I kind of I try to I have a kind of uh, both and view of like what, what you're talking about, like comparing historical epochs or or um even different places in the world. And I, I always I always use the metaphor of like a thread, mm. you know. And so when I think about Adam Smith and kind of his justification for industrialization and, and in some ways a, a kind of you know ration you know rationale that Marx bought into the mm -hmm. seeing capitalism as this advancement in human productivity right. um, and and the ability to harness work and to, to output and so forth 
of course, like the things like imagining like all these different things around the thread, of course, those change, right? And the thread is very thin compared to everything around it. But it is these like connective threads that like stretch across time. And to give a kind of more specific example, like, of course, the kind of racist bigotry that brought about the transatlantic slave trade or or colonial rule in Africa and Southeast Asia and in the Middle East uh, and the kind of civilizational notions of superiority and inferiority are, are much different than kind of a lot of things in the ways people think about things now and, and, and often quite, you know, generally much, much for the better, mm-hmm. but we can still see connective threads, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then when you mentioned that Jordan Peterson example, right, that that rationale is, is in some ways a parody. Now, of course, totally different context, totally different different epoch but it's it's it ha, it is kindred to the adam smith justification mm-hmm. like in in some way it, it, they're 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 kind of kindred spirits and so i i always like this idea of of, of trying to understand continuity while mm-hmm. you know embracing notions of dramatic changes in social historical conditions that that move forward and so yeah i, I I'm, I'm on board i mean it can be you can yeah you don't want to just say like you know you know kind of just like deal in these absolute categories i guess yeah right Absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, this is a, um, in my opinion, reveals Jordan Peterson's absolutely elementary education of, of, you know, philosophy in general. Um, and I, I say that with absolute certainty, you know, I, the way he reflects on, uh, quote unquote history is so troubled and, um, philosophically speaking, he has no, uh, absolutely no, re- uh, regard for discontinuity and epistem- at the at the level of epistemology, and to disregard that to me is a a sign of just intellectual weakness or laziness or ignorance. Yeah. I don't know one of those yeah. three. Um, I don't yeah. I, I don't read his books to to know for certain, but it's definitely one of those because I've heard him do it. Um, in that debate with Zizek, I've heard uh, you know, when I was first fo- watching his. Anyway, the the important thing about him is that he, in my opinion, is reflective of what I think is a common sort of pseudo intellectualism, um, right. and there's a, there's slight intensities of that. And I'm I'm not trying to make myself to sound like a, um, you know, the the uh, an almighty intellectual. I know a few things. I've been reading. The, I've been mired in this shit for a long time now. I hope right. I've been reading like every, I've, you know, pouring through Foucault, Nietzsche, and Deleuze, and. Leotard, right. you know, over the years, I hope that I've picked up some sense of authority, a little, <laughs> sure, a, no, a, a, a smidge. Can I, can I get a smidge? Can I just, uh, you got, George, you got all yeah, props here. Think. Yeah, no, for sure. No, and I, I hear what you're saying though. I mean, you feel like you don't want to be self-referential or kind of aggrandizing, but yeah, as someone who spent decades mired in like one field of study or, you know, not one, but in a certain, yeah, you, you feel like, Hey, that's got to come for something. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> because Immediately. I feel that, you know, it's insecurity on a personal level, but I immediately feel, unless I've had you know, uh, publications, which, you know, I'm, I haven't, I haven't published in a field um, other than, uh, I don't know, but I haven't really, I'm not well published or anything like that. I feel right. like, I feel like the, the, maybe I do have this sort of, I give an over allowance to the expert. I want to finish because I wanted to just talk to you speaking of your work and in one, you, you know, I can understand because no matter where you are in this kind of academic game, you always feel this kind of, I, I feel a lot of imposter 
kind of, they talk about like imposter syndrome. I still Definitely. struggle with that. Yeah. Um, I go to academic conferences and like somebody who's like written like two big like Cornell and Duke University presses are on the panel. I'm like, oh my God, they're going to think I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. <laughs> but, so no, I mean, that's kind of academia. I mean, that's, that's you know, the, the nature of the business. You're always feeling kind of like an imposter. You don't know enough or your papers mm-hmm. aren't good enough or right. someone's already done this better. So yeah, I think that is part of that world um but on that note I, i'm really fascinated by this work i'm excited about it uh, again i just learned about this in the in the notes we kind of put together for the show tell me a little bit about this work uh, um about uh, the work your father's done we'll kind of close out with that i think it's a good place to wrap up yeah so this is the first time i've actually <laughs> mentioned it on a public forum but i think it's um you know it's fine so my dad he got a position you know shortly after shock and awe my dad was working and he got a job um, as a translator in Iraq for the State Department. So the State Department at that time had hired, uh, you know, took jobs for the specific need for translators because of having to communicate with Iraqi prisoners, um, uh, Iraqi people, different type, you know, different people in the towns. And my dad's particular job was speaking with Iraqi prisoners. So he uh, he went to Iraq, yeah, to do that. Um, and at that time, you know, he was working hand in hand with a particular um, platoon, and they would ask him to come in and communicate with these with these prisoners, and they would, you know, ask mm. and and interrogate them. Um, so he was doing this for a while, and then one day he got a particular request to uh, for a job, and my dad naturally asked what the, who what the job was about, and they said it was classified. We can't, I don't, you know, the person that was relaying the message to the, to him, which I think was his superior, couldn't tell him what the mission was. He would just have to agree to it or not and the, and the location of it or the region of it. So my dad, um, I think he took it up a notch and asked another higher up and they told him that it's usually a good thing and you should probably take it. Um, I, I, there's a lot of steps there and I've, I've, I, have, uh, I have hours and hours of, of my dad talking about this particular uh, wow. this particular time I'm, I'm just p- p- cutting through. So he, mm. so my dad agrees finally, and they take him to by helicopter at night to a particular location. Um, he, mm. you know, he's, he notices that he lands on an Island and he goes into a room. Um, he goes into the, the, he gets, he gets escorted into a room, um, into a large room, um, and mm. then the, the people that escort him leave, and then another group of people show up, and amongst these people is Saddam Hussein. And so, they, they, yeah, so they asked my father to um, be his personal translator for the next, Whoa. yeah, for the next year and a half. Um, so my dad, oh, 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 oh. I mean, not not for any a given amount of time. I don't think he knew at that point he'd be with him for that long. But Saddam Hussein had already been through a, a translator who was actually an undercover FBI agent who had been with Saddam uh. Hussein for six months um, trying to see about these w- these alleged WMDs, which Saddam Hussein didn't because uh, there wasn't. Uh, and so the, the FBI agent finally was called back in and then my dad came in to take it from there. So he proceeded to be his translator and basically with him daily every day for a year and a half. And so they'd formed a pretty Whoa. interesting friendship, um, a bond. Of course, my dad wasn't a fan of Saddam Hussein. Now he's a Palestinian. Um, and if you know much about the Middle East, you know, most, right. a lot of, um, 
you know, there's a there's a there's a lot of different takes on Saddam Hussein. Of course, my dad's on the side of uh, he did not uh, like him. In fact, most Arab, most of the Arab world was uh, saw him as a person of fear, um, a person that spread fear in the Iraqi uh, nation. Right. Th- that was beyond American propaganda. This was th- this was a prevalent thought in the Middle East uh, amongst Arabs that Saddam Hussein was was you know ruled uh, in a dictator dictatorial way, totalitarian way. Um, anyway, so he was now finding found himself with Saddam Hussein and not only Saddam Hussein, but also, um, a lot of Saddam Hussein's, uh, uh, cabinet. Um, he was, mm. yeah. So, and also chemical Ali, he knew all of these people, of course. Wow. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's sort of the work on the, you know, the, how to, how to put it would be an immigrant story, Considering my dad's mm. um, migration to the middle or to the U.S. from right. at that time was Lebanon, but he had lived in Kuwait, and then went and then you know his story through uh, the U.S. and then, but also sort of uh, talking about t- uh, talking about this in a genealogical perspective. I'm using a lot of my studies of Foucault to kind of talk uh, right. to talk about to inform the genealogical sort of perspective as to what was occurring at that time and bring in other slices of it. But then I also want to talk about Saddam Hussein's um, rise through the people and the, the sort of collective gestalt of Iraq and how that was it w- worked um, in sort of inner dynamism with Sad- Saddam's creation, which is, po- po- which is politics and philosophy, right? The, the sort of, hmm dynamic cycle of that um what occurs in politics informs philosophy and and philosophies are formed and they cut in turn inform politics so the fact that saddam hussein's a bathist would you know preclude him from ever being in um some sort of alliance with saudi arabia or with the uh with the uh particular sect i've uh, the name escapes me at the moment but where the bin ladens come from of of islam uh, mm. he wasn't, you know, he's a uh, Wahhabi. Waha- yes, exactly. Wahhabi that he was at odds with that kind of, um, sure. with that kind of interpretation of, of, of a state and the use of Islam therein. And so I don't know, uh, I'm kind of getting off point, but the, that, you know, in a nutshell that I'm trying to relay that I'm trying to relay the idea of Saddam's, um, emergence in that way, but but by also discussing other uh, megalomania, the the megalomania of a leader, but also um, how that is it, it working with the population. How is he a product of the epis- the episteme? You know, and how does that work? Right. And I guess you know I haven't finished the book. I've barely begun it. Um, I have a lot of hours of you know discussion with my dad. I've written out some some ideas of chapters and. Um, and uh, uh, outline particular areas too, but it's it's. I'm still taking uh, a lot of research in. That sounds yeah. I mean, this just sounds fantastic, uh, George. Yeah, I, I, I'm. Uh, I I, it, I mean, a book. Even if I didn't know you and never met you, and if I saw a book like with that kind of premise, um, I would I would definitely pick it up. I mean, that just I like that you're kind of trying to take this, you know and put this in your own family story, the story of the Middle East and the story of the Arab world um, in, in the post-colonial period. I think so many things kind of tied together. And and in some ways, Saddam was representative of this kind of path, this one you know view of, of, of modernity in the Arab world that in some ways, again, is still unfolding 
awfully in the, in the in the Syrian civil war. So everyone stay posted. I, I think that is going to be an, you know a really interesting and important book, George. So I think that's a and I think that's as good a place as any to wrap up what I have. It's just been, I think, better than I could have expected. I mean, I knew this was going to be a cool conversation, but this kind of conversation kind of reflects what we're going to be trying to do in the in the podcast in the future. And it might not always be based on American politics. It won't be. I'm going to hopefully bring in a lot of guests from different places in the world, but still always trying to think about the contemporary and the kind of underlying philosophical um, questions and issues that emerge from an intense focus on the here and now. And I think George has been a great guest to talk to. So thank you so much, George, for coming today. Yeah, awesome time, man. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. If you're still here now, you are already a, a diehard fan or a hardcore Sam Harris fan that is waiting to the last moment <laughs> to trash it. I don't know. One or the other. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, have a wonderful day. And we'll try to get a new episode up within um, another week or two. So please stay tuned. Thanks so much. Peace. Peace.